Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today on our podcast. I've got a a wonderful guest with us who's going to share some illuminating insight into his brilliance, and that is our youth pastor, Andrew Hayes. Um, A couple of podcasts ago, we talked about the doctrine of the atonement, and so I've invited Andrew to come back on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. You know, glad to be back. All right, so what are we talking about today? We are talking about the whole issue of how does God speak. And so Andrew set up the situation. We went to a conference last week where you and I were invited. And for the most part, uh, I'd say 80% of it was solid and good, but there was the 20% of it that you and I really struggled with. And so maybe tell the listening audience without uh, divulging any uh, information that maybe uh, they don't need to know, but just as far as what the conference was about and what, what kind of bothered us with some of the theology. Right. So, so the conference um, was geared towards the heart of leaders and how to train leaders, which I think is a great, a great emphasis to have. But what we found uh, in the, one of the sessions, we, they were talking about God speaking. Now, I don't have anything wrong with saying that God spoke, depending on how we define how God speaks. And the first couple of things were, were fine. But then eventually it began to, to sound like they were, they were, the argument or the uh, presupposition is that God can speak to us through circumstances, through dreams and visions, and, and can still and continues to reveal and say things to us in the present. And so with that, we began to feel pretty uneasy with what was being, being said. I think they were just being, personally I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think they were just being a little imprecise. Right, I think there were some categorical errors and also some maybe semantic issues, but I guess the way that it was started was, um, this was a question that was posed to us, if God spoke to you this morning, would you write it down? And that just kind of struck me as, if God spoke to me, would I write it down? Now, I, I, they went on to unpack the importance of journaling what God is saying to you through the written scriptures, but right. see, oftentimes in our evangelical circles, we may hear people say things like, you know, God directly spoke to me, or God told me, or I heard a still, small voice, or I had an inner prompting, and some people may even say I had a dream and a vision, or even an angelic uh, visitation. And so, uh, one of the popular books out right now uh, that really espouses this view is uh, Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. So, Andrew, what's the book Jesus Calling about? Right, so uh, the author, Sarah Young, she, uh, instead of I guess in, instead of reading her Bible and kind of expositing the text, what her idea was is I'm going to sit and wait until Jesus tells me things. And then I'm going to write these devotions as if I am Jesus speaking to you or speaking to me. So it's uh, written from the first person. So it, it's kind of, for for me, it's really kind of strange because I've read, I read a couple of them and it's as if like, um, she's putting words in the mouth of Jesus, speaking to us, and, and supposedly as a devotional, and what she heard. Right, so this is a discipline that supposedly she has learned where she sits still and just waits for inner promptings or for Jesus to come talk to her, and then she writes these insights down. 
Uh, one of the things that we need to go to before we even start this discussion is maybe it's helpful to go to um, one of the most robust confessions of faith. And as you guys know that listen to my podcast, know I reference the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 a lot uh, because I think it really articulates what I believe um, as a Reformed Baptist. But in chapter 1, paragraph 6, it does tell us how God speaks. So Andrew, why don't you read the entry there from uh, the Second London Baptist Confession So the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to the human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, but one of the things that it affirms very clearly is that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary. It teaches the necessity and the sufficiency of Scripture and denies the need for any type of new revelation to be added to the written Word of God. And I guess we would call that the closed canon. Yes, the closed canon of Scripture. Uh, one of the modern-day documents uh, you know, articulated in the late 1970s, 1979, uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, in Article 5, they give a denial It says, we deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. That's an important statement. We deny that any normative revelation has been given. So basically, it's affirming a closed canon, that when the New Testament ended with the gospel, I mean, actually, actually the book of Revelation, when John the Apostle penned the last words, that was the closing of the canon. There is no longer any new revelation. Right, and that was one of the criteria when the early church was deciding which books the new, you know, which books were to be included with the New Testament was, was there apostolic authorship behind yes. this particular book? And so the confessions, and especially among us as Reformed Baptists and Evangelicals, the, the issue of sola scriptura, the issue of a closed canon, has really not been something that we've struggled with. But really, it seems like in the past few decades, a Christian mysticism has, has made a resurgence. And it's not nothing new. Christian mysticism has been around for centuries. Back uh, during the, the time of the Reformation, the, the Reformers had to deal with it. And I think one of the most popular and best-selling Christian books ever written is Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. And uh, he's got a statement in there where he says, Blessed are the ears that hear the still, small voice of God. Blessed are those who enter deeply into the inner things and daily prepare themselves to receive the secrets of heaven. And if you go on to read Thomas Akempis, it's not really related to the written word of God. It's these inner promptings. It's the still, small voice. Sit and wait and, and wait for the Holy Spirit to speak directly to you outside of the written word. And so the reformers address these mystical approaches um, in the 16th and 17th century. Um, almost every major Protestant confession of faith um, promulgates the doctrine of sola scriptura, 
Um, a really good definition of sola scriptura comes from Matthew Barrett. He's written a book. Um, there, there's a new series of books on the five solas of the Reformation that are coming out this year um, in light of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, and his is on scripture alone. And Matthew Barrett defines uh, this as sola scriptura means that only scripture because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Which I think is a good definition. Yeah, you know, and I think the, the thing to remember, you know, like um, and we earlier we read the confession, we're not saying that Scripture is the only authority, but we're saying it's the final court of authority. Right. So, so law Scripture does not mean so low Scripture. We, we have church history, we have creeds and confessions, we have the, the, the cumulative wisdom of the church to help us understand the Scriptures, but the final and sole ultimate authority is the God-breathed Scriptures. And then... In the past few decades, um, mystical, I would say, non-reformed approaches to understanding how God speaks have really crept into Baptistic circles. And, and when I say Baptistic, I'm not talking about the charismatic movement. I think the charismatic movement's always had the word faith. There's always been a propensity in the charismatic churches to, to be more open to that. But I think in non-charismatic evangelical churches, Southern Baptist churches, Bible churches, uh, there, there has been in the past few decades this new mystical approach to how God speaks. And, and we may be um, trying to topple down a sacred cow here, especially in Southern Baptist life, because this is a person that I grew up um, reading his books, and, and he was highly esteemed. Uh, but the more you kind of understand his theology, the more it becomes problematic. And that is Henry Blackaby and his seminal work, Experiencing God. Andrew, I don't know if you've ever gone through Experiencing God. or You know, I never read Experiencing God, but I did read his uh, spiritual leadership in similar ideas that are exp- you know, espoused in spiritual leadership. Yeah, when I was in seminary, one of the required readings was experiencing God in our spiritual formation class. And so as a Southern Baptist, especially if you grew up in the 90s and um, you know, within the past couple of decades, um, he is a, a juggernaut of spiritualism, of, of discipleship, Henry Blackaby. But it's interesting, one of the quotes from Experiencing God, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on, But he says this, he writes this um, on page 88. You come to know God's voice as you experience him in a love relationship. As God speaks and you respond, you will come to the point that you recognize his voice more and more clearly. That to me is not very helpful because it's it's, it's kind of fuzzy. I, I can't quite quantify it. The more you get to know him, the more you get to recognize his voice Clearly, it doesn't seem to say that God is speaking through the scriptures. How is God speaking to you? Right, you know, and kind of to add a personal story, when I was in seminary, my spiritual formation class, they, uh, they had me go do nothing for an hour where I was just not supposed to think about anything. I was just supposed to, in their words, dwell in the presence of God for an hour. And so no, no, ba- no basis of the word. Just no open Bible, no... Nothing. I wasn't supposed to take a journal. I wasn't supposed to take anything. Just to, supposed to just go off by myself for an hour and be in God's presence. I and would have fallen asleep. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. I ended up with a good nap. This may be a book that, that some people aren't as familiar with, but it was pretty um, influential. Joyce Huggett um, has a book called Listening to God. And in this, she's got a statement where she quotes a man named David um, Watson. This book came out kind of in the early 2000s. Um, it says this, Since God is the living God, he is constantly trying to speak to us, and we in turn need to listen to him. 
If we are keeping spiritually, or if we are to keep spiritually alive and alert, we need every word that God is continually speaking. So God is trying to speak. He's having a hard time trying to do it. The problem is, is that we're not listening, but he's continually speaking. Well, what does that mean, he's continually speaking? Right. You know, I, I think the analogy that I've, that I've heard with, with this is they talk about God sort of like a broadcast radio. You know, like God's broadcasting, and he's, he's saying things, and we need to tune in. Get the, get the right frequency. Get the right frequency so we can hear, hear that, you know, God's speech to us. Which brings up some fundamental questions, and these are the questions I think we struggled with. And, and I guess the questions are, is God continually speaking to his people outside of the written scriptures? Are we ever commanded in the scriptures to try to recognize or perceive God's still small voice? Are we instructed to believe that God still communicates to us today through dreams and visions and inner promptings and, and things like that? I mean, when you look at a survey of popular books on the subject, I mean, there's a whole slew of things that, that, that they talk about, but, you know, basically these are not limited to, but including the way God speaks, audible voice from God, you know, God's you know, audible voice, yeah. the still small voice, they take that from Elijah, um, internal promptings and impressions, God speaks through circumstances, God speaks through other believers in the body of Christ, maybe a word of knowledge, maybe coming to you, God speaks through angelic visitations, he speaks through dreams and visions, I've even read where he speaks through nature, that you go out there and he'll give you a message, if you look at a bird up in a tree, God's giving you a message, um, or I remember John Eldridge was walking through one book and he was walking through the forest and he saw a cow patty in the shape of a heart and God was speaking to him right there that God loved him, so he was speaking to him through a cow patty and things like that. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I don't even know how to go on from that. Yeah, where do you go on from well, that? I, I mean, and that, I, I guess, be, you know, before we kind of get into our position, I, I've just, from pastorally, you know, we see some dangers of this because we'll see people try to justify their sins. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll, we'll hear, well, you know, yeah, I know homosexuality is wrong, but God revealed to me that it was okay. Yeah. Or God told me I needed to divorce my husband because I just wasn't happy anymore. Right. Things like that. Yeah, so it becomes very problematic when people try to justify clear commands from Scripture and clear sin issues by saying God spoke to them in contradiction to what the written Word of God says. So, so what is our position? What, what do we believe? Um, how do we hold to this, um, Andrew, as, as those that are biblically based? Um, we would maybe call ourselves those who are reformed in our theology, uh, those who believe in historic Baptistic viewpoints of this, Protestant viewpoints. Um, you know, we believe that God has spoken right. through Christ. Uh, the living word, and, and Christ is the full and final revelation of God. And so when Christ died on the cross, he died once and for all. He rose again. He inaugurated the last days. Uh, we'll get to Hebrews chapter 1 here in a moment. But Jesus also commissioned his apostles to preach the gospel, but not only that, but to write down exactly what God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directed them to write. So the final product that we have, the final scripture, is... God breathed. It contains everything we need for life and for godliness. It's a, it's a perfect treasure of divine instruction. And so we do not believe that God speaks outside of his written word. Now, we want to give a caveat. We want to make sure we're clear on this. We do believe that we as believers do grow in our knowledge, in our godliness, in our intimacy, in our fellowship with God. And we do this through reading the Bible, meditating on the Bible, 
memorizing the Bible. One of the primary right. ways God has given us to, to strengthen us in our faith is to hear the word preached from the Bible. And so we do believe that God uses the scriptures in different ways to feed our souls, but it always is tied back to the written, final, authoritative, inspired word of God. Right, and you know, if we if we tie it to something else, this is actually how cults get started. If we don't have a closed, final, full revelation of Jesus Christ, this is how we end up with Jehovah Witnesses with exactly. Mormons, um, because they don't hold that, which right. is why they have the Book of the Mormon and some other things. Yeah, and I think at the conference we were at, there was a I think there was a, a, a category confusion that maybe we would bring a little bit more clarity to, and I think it was the issue of the illumination of the Holy Spirit with new revelation from the Holy Spirit. And so, Andrew, talk to us, what, what is the doctrine of illumination? By illumination, from, what, what do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit gives illumination to the written scriptures? What are we saying? Yeah, yeah what we're saying is that the, the Holy Spirit enables believers to better understand, to recall, and to apply the, the scriptures in their life. And really, he does that through the ministry of, of the Word. And when we think about it, he inspired the word, and he also illuminates, helps us to understand the words that we are actually reading. Right. So you think about even the word illuminate. It means to turn the light on. So as you're reading the written scriptures, and, and there, I'll be, to be honest with you, there's times I'm sitting uh, doing sermon prep, and I'm coming across a passage of scripture, and, and I'm like, what in the world is <laughs> yeah. this about? And I pray for illumination. Holy Spirit, please turn the light bulb on in my brain, turn the light bulb on in my heart that I'm able to understand what you've written. Not, don't give me a new insight. Don't give me a new revelation. Don't speak directly to my heart. Help me to understand what's in front of me as the written text of Scripture that you inspired. Give me illumination. Right, and, and we forget, too, that God uses means. And part of the means of illumination could be studying and dwelling and thinking about it a lot. Yeah. It, and the Holy Spirit can work through those particular means. Or even just commentaries. Those that are smarter than us that have studied this, that can, you know, God's given teachers to the church to help us to have illumination as well. I think John Calvin, it always comes back to either Calvin or Spurgeon for me as far as good quotes. <laughs> so, but he, in his institutes, he does bring up a really good uh, definition of, of illumination. He says, for, quote, For God alone can properly bear witness to his own words. So these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they are faithfully delivered the message which they were divinely entrusted. And I think it's important. He talks about the inward illumination, the Holy Spirit penetrating our hearts, the Holy Spirit confirming the truths of Scripture. And so we do believe that the Holy Spirit is active. He does penetrate our hearts. He does enlighten our minds. He does help us to gain new insights, new applications into the written Word of God. But this illumination is not the same thing as revelation. What's the difference, Andrew, between illumination and revelation? I think that's where some confusion comes into play. Yeah, revelation, uh, we, would, we would say, is God revealing, God uncovering, telling us something that would be otherwise unknown uh, to his prophets, to his apostles, to be written down for the edification of the church. Okay, so if, some, if, so if somebody comes to you and gives you a word and says, um, I'm giving you a message from God, and this is directly from God, how do you take that? Well, you know, I, I kind of, in, in my head, I, the alarms are going off or the red light is going off, like, 
So you're telling me that you're telling me new scripture. That's, that's what I'm hearing when, when I hear those words. Yeah. So the closed canon of scripture is the only objective treasury of infallible truth. So the Holy Spirit does not give new revelation, but he does continue to give fresh insights into the written text. So we don't want to be misunderstood to say that we believe, I guess a, a good way to put it is we believe God still speaks, but he speaks through the written word by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, bringing insight and illumination, not new revelation. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I think that's, that's what we're trying to get at. And so we also believe preaching is very important. And so we believe strongly in the expository preaching of God's word. And, and I believe every time, and I know you do, every time you stand up to preach and you open up the text and you declare the text and you exposit the text and you preach the text, God is speaking to his people in gathered worship. Um, and so, you know, what does Paul say in Romans ten seventeen? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, Daryl Johnson has an interesting statement about preaching. He says, the word of the Lord is living and active, powerful and creative. The Word of God not only informs, it performs, it transforms. The Word of God makes things happen. Um, I like that quote, because when you're preaching, the Holy Spirit does take the written Word of God, and He does things with it to bring about regeneration, conviction, sanctification, all those types of things. Right, when you think about it, uh, you know, from a human perspective, here we are, men on, on a stage or a podium behind a pulpit, opening up a text and talking about this text. Now, from a human perspective, it's like, really? That's, that's what God's going to use to change people? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what he does. Yeah, through the, through, through the preached word. Now, one of the things I think we struggled with at this conference, and maybe as a listener, you may struggle, and you say, no, wait a minute, what are you, what are you talking about? I think sometimes there's misunderstandings of semantics or vocabulary, maybe used by evangelicals to describe how God gives guidance how God gives leading. Um, the Puritans called these um, uncovenanted blessings. And let me kind of explain what, what they meant by that. Uh, an uncovenanted blessing would be, you know, God in his secret providential counsel of his good pleasure, he may providentially guide you, he may lead you through circumstances, through trials, through words from other believers, through the body of Christ, through people using their spiritual gifts. Um, he, he may providentially guide you and lead you, but this should not be confused or conflated with the idea that God speaks to you or that you're hearing God's voice. I think it's a clear distinction to make, Andrew. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, because we want to... I, I think people just aren't being precise with what they mean when they say God mm. spoke to me or God, mm. God would have me tell you this. I think what they're meaning God is impressed upon me or God, God is leading me um, or I have this idea. Um, but I don't think that it's, I would be very careful saying God spoke to me. Yeah, I mean, think about just in ministry. For, you know, you've been, you've been called to Emmanuel. Um, I've been called to Emmanuel. I, I served at a church before that. Um, even in the ministerial call, how God leads and guides and uses you know, your own prayer time, the advice of other people, the confirmation from the church. Um, he, he brings all those circumstances together to lead you to accept a call when a church calls you. And I would say God led me to Emmanuel Baptist Church. God called me. The church confirmed that call, but I would in no way say God spoke to me and told me to go to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Right. And I, I think... I think we want to be careful to say that because I would say, where's your recording? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I would like to hear that. 
So the only place that we actually hear God's voice, the only place that God actually speaks is through the written word of God, by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, bringing illumination into our hearts and minds. And so we're not denying that God can providentially guide believers. We're not denying that God can't use circumstances. God can't help you through prayer and fasting. God can't use the body of Christ. God can't lead you. We just don't want to confuse that with God speaking or God's voice. I think that's maybe a semantic, a vocabulary difference, but I think it's precision in language. It it protects sola scriptura, and I think it protects the idea of the closed canon. Right, and, you know, we want to uh, be precise with our language. I mean, you look at our our confessions and our creeds, and the reason that they have staying power is because they were precise. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk about a biblical rationale of, um, we've got some three truths here um, related to a biblical rationale of why we believe this. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, you know, God doesn't speak anymore. What's your proof? Well, let's, let's just talk about a biblical rationale. And so truth number one, God has spoken, past tense. I mean, you talk about creation. What, what did God do in creation? Right. I mean, what's the, what's the common refa- refrain, right? And God said, and then there was. And God said, and then there was. And that's the common pattern in Genesis uh, chapter 1 is God speaks creation into existence. Yeah, so God's a speaking God. Uh, Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Um, so God has always been a speaking God. Um, in the garden, he spoke to Adam and Eve. When the Lord called Abraham, he spoke to him in words. When God delivered his law to the Israelites, he spoke to his servant Moses. Uh, what, is Moses I mean, what is Moses? What does Deuteronomy 8, 3 uh, describe for us? Yeah, it says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So when I think of God speaking, to me personally, speech must always have words associated with it. Right. Um, I don't know how an inner prompting or sitting in silence or even a dream and a vision in a sense, I understand that God spoke that way in the Old Testament, but the primary way God spoke was through either audible words or um, sentences, propositional statements. They were always words that were recognizable, and nobody doubted it was actually God speaking. Right, and there are few times where God literally writes the word. You know, for example, the Ten Commandments. you got God who literally is writing. Yeah, which leads us to truth number two. God's spoken word is written. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, there are times, we see it all the time, where God speaks, God speaks, God's communicating, but there also are times where we see God specifically telling his prophets to write down what he said. Now, we're going to get to this when we talk about Hebrews chapter 1, but in the Old Testament, God did speak in various ways. I mean, unrepeatable, is God going to speak to you out of a burning bush? No, in redemptive history, that was strictly for Moses. Uh, He led the Israelites with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. Uh, King Belshazzar in Daniel 5, you've got the writing on the wall. Um, In Acts chapter 5, the apostles cast lots to replace Judas. Paul was guided to a new missionary assignment by the vision of the man from Macedonia. And so we're not denying that in redemptive history, God did speak in various unique ways to communicate with his people. But we have to remember, these are biblical narratives that describe how God spoke in a particular time, in a particular location. These are narratives. They don't necessarily give clear instructions on how God promises to speak to us today. 
you know, and I, I want to hit on that because that still small voice idea comes from Elijah. Mm-hmm. You know, Elijah's uh, put in a cave, and, you know, there's thunder, and there's lightnings, and there's an earthquake. And then finally God appears and speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. Now, does that mean, no, just because it happened to Elijah, that doesn't mean that it's, that's how God continues to speak. Right, and I think that was one of the issues that I struggled with at that conference was, it was almost saying that every way that God spoke in the Old Testament, he's bound to do that again. And so just because God did it once, we don't, you know, I guess what I'm trying to protect is the uniqueness of the biblical narratives and redemptive history, that I'm not Elijah, I'm not a prophet, that was a unique way that God spoke to him. God does not guarantee to speak to everybody that way, and, and, our, and we're not commanded to go up on a mountain and listen for God's still small voice. Yeah. So let's talk about the written word of God. Um, in order to preserve his word for generations to come, God commissioned his servants to write down the word, to inscripturate it. Um, Exodus thirty four twenty seven. the Lord said to Moses, write these words For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So God tells him, write down the covenant, write down the book of the law. Why would you want to write it down as opposed to just orally keeping it going from generation to generation orally? You you know, it preserves the the, the words as they were given. You know, so that they're not added to, they're not taken away from. You get to see exactly what it was that God, God said. And the interesting thing, here's the interesting thing, and and this is something that I, I worked on in my doctoral dissertation it's interesting because God told Moses to write down the words, and this was back in Exodus. And you know what happened with the Exodus generation. They were disobedient. They wandered in the wilderness. After 40 years, they died. So there's a new generation. And so you, you ask the question, well, why? It, it almost sounds like the book of Deuteronomy is almost the same as the book of Exodus. What's, why, why are we having almost the same material? It is the same material, but it's a new generation that's poised to go into the promised land. And so what Moses actually does is he actually preaches sermons based upon the text that was already written down in Exodus. So if you go through and look at these sermons that are preached, there's three sermons preached in the book of of Deuteronomy. And you go back and look at these sermons, he's often quoting directly from what God already gave to him back in Exodus that's already written down. So the sermons in the book of Deuteronomy are actually sermons, expository sermons expositing the already written down law which I find interesting that Moses is actually preaching material that was already given to him once, but this time it's written down. Right, and if you were to actually, if you read through Deuteronomy, you can tell that it was given as a speech. You know, it wasn't, it didn't start out as a written word itself. It became one, and it was inscripturated and written down, but it originated from Moses speaking. Yeah, Moses was preaching. As a matter of fact, at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 31, 9 through 11, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So even at the end of Deuteronomy, he wrote everything down, gave it to the priests, preserved it as a written document in the Ark of the Covenant to be preserved for generations to come. What about um, the prophets? What about Isaiah and Jeremiah? Yeah, so Isaiah 38, uh, the prophet Isaiah is told, and now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So here you have this idea it's supposed to go forever. Yeah. And then also in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in the book all the words that I have spoken to you. Okay. Um, In the New Testament, we also find believers appealing to the written scriptures of the Old Testament to hear God's voice. And so, obviously, the New Testament believers didn't have the New Testament. What was their source of authority? It was the Old Testament scriptures. Right. The so, Bible Jesus had. Yeah, the Bible Jesus had. Um, and so, you know, what, Paul goes into Berea, and he preaches the gospel, and he leaves. And uh, what does Acts seventeen eleven tell us about the Bereans? Yeah, we were told that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what did they do? They went to their Bibles, and they tried to check out what, uh, well, I was going to say Pastor Paul, but yeah. <laughs> Pastor, Pastor Paul works. What Paul was declaring was, was true. Yeah, now in Acts, do they go into a time of silence out in the field to wait to hear God's voice? Do they seek inner promptings? Uh, do they wait for an angelic visitation? Where, where, where's their source of authority? Where do they go to determine if this is true? They go to the Old Testament. They go to see. They go to check out, make sure what Paul is saying is actually there. And it's important that the entire church could do that. You see, when you have a subjective revelation, one person can go say, well, I thought Paul said this. I thought Paul said this. I went out in the woods and God revealed this to me. When you have a written document that everybody can look at, then the whole church comes together and there's a unified way of weighing what Paul said with the document as opposed to each person's individual experiences. And that's what the church did. You know, Paul tells us about the sufficiency of Scripture uh, for, for the Old Testament scriptures for the New Testament days, in, in Romans fifteen four, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. First uh, Corinthians ten eleven. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So truth number one, God has spoken in various ways in the Old Testament. But number two, God has spoken and had his word written down. Okay, truth number three, now that God's word is written down and Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and there are no longer any living apostles or prophets and the closed canon, truth number three is God's written word is the supreme, final, and only sufficient authority for life and for godliness and for the church. Right, and and, you know, we're told... Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You know, and I think it's important to, to re- remember that every, everything that God said is true. So kind of with that, when somebody comes and says, Hey, I have a word from the, from the Lord, well, it better prove true. Yes, because every word of God tr- proves true, and every word of God is authoritative. Right. So does God ever speak without it being authoritative or performative? No. <laughs> because doesn't Isaiah say God's word will not return void? It will accomplish what he accomplishes? So if, if, if you get an inner prompting or you get a word from the Lord, then based upon the fact that it's from the Lord, it should be performative, it should be authoritative, and it should be you know, lasting for all time. And if that's the case, then why don't you write it down and add it to the scriptures? Right. And I think that's bottom line. I think most people realize what they're saying isn't scripture. I just... I, th- I wish they were more precise and thought through it a little more carefully. Right. And, and we hold to a hermeneutical principle when it comes to the book of Acts, because a lot of stuff happens in the book of Acts, and some people would say, what happens in the book of Acts is normative for the church today. Um, we have to be real careful, because we don't cast lots today to choose 
replacements. Um, right. We don't, you know, we don't have handkerchiefs that, you know, heal, we we heal people or, you know, Eutychus raising from the dead. So it is a transitional period. It is a period where the scripture is being written, the church is being established. Um, we would hold to a cessationist view of the apostolic gifts. And we would really look, our hermeneutical principle is don't look at the book of Acts for what is normative. There's a lot of things there that we can learn about. But as far as how the church is to be ordered, we look at the pastoral epistles because that's the instructions after the, uh, the apostolic age of how the church is to be ordered without the transitional period in the book of Acts. Right. And, you know, that's one of the hermeneutical uh, principles is you interpret what is uh, unclear by what is clear and or the didactic, the teaching material. And then you look at the teaching material and then you go back and interpret right. the narrative. Exactly. And that's 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 very important. So the prime, the foundational text is Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, um, which is very, very, you know, everybody should know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, this is a very, very important passage of Scripture because it says a lot about the nature of Scripture. Uh, first of all, notice that the term is um, graphe, Scripture. It's not God's audible voice that we're talking about here. It's God's written word. When it says all scripture, it's talking about the actual written documents, the original manuscripts. Right. And all scripture, the totality. So you're a recent Greek student who's graduated from seminary. What does the Greek preposition use there? Well, when you, when you say pos, all, it means all and all means all. Yeah. So every bit of the written scriptures is um, theonoustos, this is very, very important. That, that Greek word theonoustos, breathed out by God, it's really a compound word. It, 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 theos comes from the Greek word God, pneuma, breath or spirit. So when you think of theonoustos, nowhere in the Bible do we have anything that's described as being theonoustos besides the written word of God, which is very, very important because it is God-breathed. It's the very word of God, the written scriptures. So if somebody has a dream or a vision, is it theonoustos? If somebody has an inner prompting, is it theonoustos? If somebody has a still small voice, is that God-breathed? The only thing that we find that's God-breathed is the written scriptures. Right. And I think that's a good boundary, hedge to keep us from straying. Right. So all scripture is God-breathed. Now, when you look at the pastoral epistles, when you think about Timothy and Titus, Nowhere do we see Paul exhorting Timothy to seek impressions, new revelations, hearing God audibly speak. What does Paul exhort Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles and by extension us today? What are we supposed to be doing with, with spiritual growth and hearing the voice of God? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Yeah, rightly handling the word of truth. And that word of truth is not an inner prompting or a still small voice. It's what? The written... It's, it's the word. It's the word that the Bible that Timothy would have had. And, and how do you know that you're rightly handling the word of truth unless it's objective, that other people can weigh and say, 
you're either not handling it correctly or you are handling it correctly. If it's a private interpretation, if it's a subjective feeling, how is anybody going to weigh if you're rightly handling the Word of God? Right. And remember earlier we mentioned creeds and confessions, and that's one of those helpful hedges and boundaries. Like if we begin to say things that are outside of those creeds and confessions— we're probably saying something that isn't in Scripture. Exactly. And we're not saying the creeds and confessions are infallible or that they're inspired. We're just saying that they, they are really solid guide rails, guideposts of the collective wisdom of the church for centuries that have articulated what doctrine is. And so it helps us to stay within the guardrails of what the historic churches believe. Right. And, you know, Paul also would tell, you know, Timothy elsewhere, Second Timothy 4, uh, two through four says this: Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Yeah, and so what are we to be preaching? The word. The word, which ties back to, in context, the, the inspired, God-breathed, written text and we're told that this is a guard against false teaching exactly and like against i would say extra revelation yeah Um, exactly now let's get to hebrews 1 1 through 2 because i think this is a parad this is a um a text that's a good paradigm a good um foundational text for why we would believe that god no longer speaks today outside the written word so andrew read hebrews 1 1 through 2 yeah, it says this, long, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what do we, what do we see in that passage of scripture? Well, you know, it begins by acknowledging the inspiration of the Old Testament, right? Because we're told that long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Mm-hmm. So it's emphasizing, hey, God did speak through the prophets. But in these last days, now let's pause and read last days. That's referring to, that's a common New Testament term, which was referring to the first advent and second advent of Christ, when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. So wh- wh- what time are we in? We're in the last days. Yeah, we're not waiting for the last days. The moment Jesus went back up to heaven, he inaugurated the last days. So we're currently living in these. Right. And so when you think about God's plan of redemptive history, Christ is the full and final living word of God. Right. And God speaks to us today through his son by the spirit in the scriptures. And I think it's very, very interesting when you go on and read the rest of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. So he's going to quote an Old Testament written text. But notice how he phrases it. This is uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 9. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 95. And the writer of Hebrews could have said, the psalmist said, dot, 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 and quoted it. And he wouldn't be wrong in saying that. But notice how he says it. He says, the Holy Spirit says, present tense, and then directly quotes Psalm 95. So in other words, Psalm 95 was not just something that God said in the past in the written scriptures. It's something that God is still saying to us. God is still speaking, but he's speaking through the Holy Spirit tied to the actual written word of God. 
Right, and when you begin to think a little bit theologically about where the book of Hebrews started with the with Christ being in the last days spoken through us, spoken uh, speaking to us through His Son in the last days, it makes a lot of sense that why would we expect any more revelation because we have the final word, His Son, um, and we don't need to go anywhere else. Exactly, and that's why just a few verses down, the writer of Hebrews talks about. Um, the nature of Scripture, he says in Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God does continue to speak to us. God, you could say, you're safe to say, does God speak today? Yes. How does He speak? Through the written Word. By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says the written word, he can give illumination, he can bring conviction, he can, like the, the word being a dagger, cutting into our hearts. And so, yes, we believe God still speaks, but it is through the written scriptures by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, you know, and I think it's, again, you know, it, we want to root everything back in, in the, into the word, you know, because it's too easy to stray when we're left to our own devices Another good place to go to, besides um, the book of Hebrews, is Peter makes a very interesting statement in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, we know the apostle Peter had some great privileges of being an apostle. He got to see Christ with the naked eye on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, just two other apostles got to experience that. He got to hear God's voice from heaven. Right. And as great as that was, what does Peter tell us? about the sufficiency of Scripture in Second Peter 1, 16-21. Yeah, he writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and majesty, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But when he received honor and glory from the Father, God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as great as Peter's experience was there, unrepeatable, of seeing the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, hearing God's booming voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, what does he say? We have something that's more sure. Yeah, we have the prophetic word um, more fully confirmed. In other words, he's, almost, he's saying that this is better. Yeah, and that's it's a hard concept for us to think about because we think, man, what would be better than being on the Mount of Transfiguration and hearing God's audible voice? Peter says, listen, in redemptive history, that's unrepeatable. You're not going to be up on the Mount of Transfiguration hearing the audible voice of God. Where you're going to hear God's voice is in the more fully confirmed prophetic word that has come in the Scriptures. Because he ties it there saying that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So he ties it back to that same Greek word, graphe, the written word of God. Not impressions, not still small voices, not dreams and visions. If you really want to hear a more fully convincing, powerful experience of God speaking than even the Mount of Transfiguration, read your Bible. Right. <laughs> That's what he's right. saying. Yeah, and, you know, and I think later on in Second Peter, he mentions the Apostle Paul, and he, he mentions his writings and saying, hey, he's, he's writing some things that you need to pay attention to yeah. and not twist. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, let's look at one last place, and this is probably obvious how the actual Bible ends. Um, how does Revelation 22, 18 through 19 end? Well, John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Pretty clear about not adding or subtracting to the written word of Scripture. So we've, we've given kind of a biblical rationale, but I think it's important sometimes to listen to voices from history, going all the way back to the church fathers, going back to the reformers, going back to the Puritans, even some modern voices, just to see what historically uh, men of, of the faith have said. So uh, let's go to the early church, uh, probably one of the greatest early church fathers, Athanasius. Uh, what did Athanasius say about the scriptures? Yeah, Athanasius says the sacred and divinely inspired scriptures are sufficient for the exposition of truth. So he's affirming the sufficiency of scriptures. Uh, Martin Luther said this, quote, We can declare that it surely does not indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit when a person proclaims his own thoughts and notions and begins to teach in Christendom something apart from or in addition to what Christ taught. Now the apostles have preached the word and have given their writings and nothing more that what they have written remains to be revealed. No new and special revelation or miracle is necessary. P- pretty clear from, <laughs> right. from Martin Luther there. What, yeah. about, what about John Owen? Yeah, he says, The Holy Spirit of God hath prepared and disposed of the scripture so as it might be a most sufficient and absolutely perfect way and means of communicating that saving knowledge of God and his will which is needful that we may live unto him and come unto the enjoyment of him in his glory. So the most sufficient and absolutely perfect means they're, 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 that, which if something is perfect and, and sufficient is there any other way God's going to speak to us? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and he's being clear like we shouldn't neither should we seek it. Right. John Newton the, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace it was a pastor I think he gives a good definition of the role of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He says, quote, The Holy Spirit does influence the hearts of all the children of God. They are inspired not with new revelation, but with the grace and wisdom to understand, apply, and feed upon the great things already revealed in the Scriptures. Um, I like that statement. It's pretty succinct. Yeah. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones dealt with mystics of his day, and so what did Martin Lloyd-Jones... We, we, we kind of laugh at Lloyd-Jones just because... <laughs> well, Lo- Lloyd-Jones is known for having opinions. Yeah, he's not going to mince words. He's going to tell you exactly what he feels. Tell us how you really feel, Dr. Lar- Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, and he, he once said, the main criticism of the evangelical to all of this, meaning mysticism, can be put in this form. It is a claim to a continuation of inspiration. The mystic, in a sense, is claiming that God is dealing as directly with him as he was with the Old Testament prophets. He claims God is dealing with him as he did with the apostles. Now, we as evangelicals believe that God gave a message to the prophets. He gave a message to the apostles. But we say that because God has done that, it is unnecessary that he should do that directly with us. And that's important. So what Lloyd-Jones is saying is just because God spoke in those ways, in various ways in the past, he's not obligated or we're not to seek out those ways for us today. Right. And I think that's, again, he's, he's re- being, trying to be clear on like what's normative and what was in history, in redemptive right. history. Let's just end with J.I. Packer of Voices from History. Uh, the way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which he guides us. 
The fundamental guidance which God gives to shape our lives is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word, but of the pressure on our consciences of the portrayal of God's character and will in the word, which the Spirit enlightens us to understand and apply to ourselves. I think that's an, another good thing. Yeah. So let's talk about, and let's interact with Henry Blackaby. He's a voice from the present, probably the most prolific a lot of people have done experiencing God. Right. Um, as far as a, a study, some things in it are pretty good. It talks about, you know, the sovereignty of God being always at work. Um, you know, don't get ahead of God, wait on God. Uh, I've seen it abused in the former church I was at. Um, my dad was the pastor, and he was trying to lead the people to do evangelism, to reach the neighborhood, to try to be right. on mission. Um, and the people were so into Henry Blackaby that they bucked my dad's leadership and said, no, uh, we don't think God's given us a clear word yet. Let's sit and wait and hear what God has to say. And my dad's like, God's already spoken. He's spoken in the word. We're supposed to do evangelism. We're supposed right. to do missions. We don't need to sit around and wait. No, we, need, we, we don't want to get ahead of God. We need to sit around and wait for a word from the Lord. We need to really make sure God's in this. Let's sit and wait for God to speak. So months and months they sat and waited for God to speak. And it made my dad frustrated because he's like, God's already spoken in his word. This is what we're to do. We're to be doing evangelism. Right. And for him, it was an excuse for them to be idle right. and not to do what the clear word said. So they kind of abused that teaching of let's just wait for God to give us a clear word. And they used Henry Blackaby as, as, as the example there. You, you know, and I, I, think, I think a lot of it comes down to I think people want to feel, have, have like a certain feeling of their faith. And when they're not in, in I think what, a lot of times they're, they're, when they're saying God speak or God has spoken to me or they're waiting for God is they really want to feel like it's right. Yeah, yeah they want that feeling. So here's that, that quote from Blackaby um, in Experiencing God, page 172. If the God of the universe tells you something, you should write it down. When God speaks to you in your quiet time, immediately write down what he said before you have time to forget. Now, I don't really know what that means because if it means... As I'm reading the scriptures and I'm studying the scriptures, the Holy Spirit gives me a new insight, write that down in my journal, I have no problem with that. But I don't think he qualifies how God speaks. If God tells you something, is that an audible voice? Is that an inner prompting? Right. Is that, I mean, and if you write it down immediately before you forget, does that mean that God's word has failed because you forgot to write it down? It's not authoritative. If you write it down, does that become scripture? I think it's very, very confusing. Right. Yep. Uh, how about on page 176? It is important to know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Yes. How do you know what the Holy Spirit is saying? I cannot give you a formula. I can tell you that you will know his voice when he speaks. Apart from the word, how do you know his voice? How do you know it wasn't the burrito you ate that's coming back to haunt you? Right. And, you know, at, at times, you know, we can have, I think we're very good at self-deception. We need to remember this. And a lot of times that when we are hearing a voice from, from God, a lot of times it's our own voice that's deceiving us. Yeah, and I've found a lot of people, they already know what they want to do. They've already made up their mind. And so they're looking for confirmation for what they've already decided by saying, oh, God spoke to me. And they'll come to me and say, you know, God spoke to me. And, and they'll tell me something that's like basically in clear violation of Scripture or probably something that's not very wise. And I'll say, did God really tell you that? Because that's not very wise and that's not very biblical. And is that something you've been really wanting? Deep in your heart, is that something you really want to do when you're looking for confirmation that, quote, unquote, God spoke to you? Um, here's another quote on page 134. He will speak to his people today, and how he speaks will not nearly be as important as the fact that he does speak. Hmm. 
Not sure how, how I feel or what to think too much about that, except, you know, when I see that how, how he speaks will not be nearly as important, I'm like, well, how he speaks is really important. Is he speaking to you through his word or through something yeah. else? Yeah, and the last quote from Blackaby, if you want the God of the universe to speak to you, you need to be ready for him to reveal to you what he's doing where you are. Well, how are you ready for God? I mean, if, how do you get ready for God to speak to you? I would say the way you get ready for God to speak to you is open your Bible and read. Every right. time you read your Bible, God's going to be speaking to you. And you do pray for illumination, and you do pray for insights, and, and God may providentially guide. I think the whole problem with, is with semantics. I think I would not disagree with Blackaby if he were to say God gives uncovenanted blessings and he providentially guides you through these things. But when he ties it to God speaking and saying, I don't have a formula for you, just kind of learn to do it as you go along, I don't think it's very helpful to, to people because they're, they're, they're seeking something that the Scripture does not really tell them to seek. Right, right. and I, I guess I, I think of it, you know, in some ways this might be like tea leaf theology. Sure. You know, if, if, I, if I finish my cup of tea and my tea leaves are in a certain shape on the bottom and, you know, God's got, God might be having some message for me in my, my tea leaves. Right, or the next person that walks through that door, I'm going to do this or that. And, you know, you think of um, the book of Judges and Jephthah's rash vow when his daughter <laughs> walks through the door. Anyway, that's totally off the subject. So, um, Alan Chapel has written a really good book. I like, I just finished reading. It's called True Devotion in Search of Authentic Spirituality. He's a guy from Britain. And he takes a reformed, more uh, Puritan reformed view of spiritual growth and kind of interacts with a lot of the mystical approaches. But here's what he says, quote, are we meant to listen for the voice of God as the mystics teach? Yes, we are, but not in the way they mean. We hear him speaking not in spirit-given whispers, but in the spirit-given scriptures. What he gives us is not new revelation, but fresh illumination, not additional words from God, but greater insight into the word that God has already spoken. I think that's a good, a good quote. So, um, Andrew, why don't you read this quote from this guy, R. Fowler White, um, who who's, I think kind of sums everything up. So why does the church affirm that the canon is closed? The only demonstrable basis for this affirmation is that God's giving of revelation, spoken and written, is always historically joined to and qualified by God's work of redemption. Now that God has accomplished salvation once for all in Christ, he has also spoken his word once for all in Christ and in those whom Christ authorized and empowered by his Holy Spirit. With the completion of salvation in Christ comes the cessation of revelation. Consequently, the church now lives by a spirit on, or scripture only principle of authority. To tamper with this principle invites a host of theological and pastoral problems. Finally, the Bible gives us no reason to expect that God will speak to his children today apart from the scriptures. I think that's a good, a good summary statement. So let's just recap our conclusions. We do not believe God speaks outside of his written word. But as believers, we can't grow. We can um, grow relationally in our knowledge with God through reading the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, hearing the word preached, uh, all tied to the scriptures as the Holy Spirit gives illumination. So it's important that we listen to his word as we're reading his word, that we attend to the public reading and teaching of scriptures, that we study and meditate on the scriptures, that we obey the scriptures, we're under good teaching. But does God anywhere urge us to seek signs, dreams, visions, still small voices, or other things like that? Not that I can see. 
So we must not confuse illumination with new revelation. The closed canon of Scripture is the only objective treasury of infallible truth. But what are we not saying? I mean, what are we not saying about guidance and about uncovenant blessings and, and God's providence? Right. We're not saying that God won't guide through the, the, the advice of other counselors. Proverbs is pretty clear that we're to seek advice. We're to seek counselors to help us as we think through our life, to get input from other believers. Uh, you know, our circumstances, God could be directing and showing us through our different circumstances. But I don't think we want to say that God is speaking to us through those things. I think it's God directing, leading, prompting. Um, but I don't, I don't ever want to say that God told me to do this. Exactly. So I, and some people would say, well, you're, you're arguing semantics. It's more than semantics because what we're trying to protect is the historic and biblical truth of sola scriptura, which if you're an evangelical Protestant, you have to hold to. If you're a confessional evangelical Protestant, you have to hold to, where God does not speak outside of his written word. So I want to close with a quote from Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. Um, They've got a pretty good book called Guidance in the Voice of God. They're out of Australia. Um, But let's just close with this quote from these guys. I think it's, it's a good way to end. Many Christians today are so busy trying to work out what God is supposedly saying to them through circumstances, visions, voices, impressions, and the like, that they lack the time and maybe even the interest to listen to what he is really saying to them in his eternal living word. This is the tragedy of the modern, quote, hearing God's voice movement. It is too busy listening intently for what God might say in my head this morning that it fails to hear what God is shouting at us this morning and every morning from the scriptures. So, thank you, Andrew, for being a guest today on the Understanding Christianity podcast. This is Holy Week, and so I pray as you prepare for Resurrection Sunday that uh, maybe you have a good Friday service at your church you can attend to. Um, If not, spend Friday focusing in on the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and then go to your church on the Lord's Day morning to celebrate the resurrection, and it will be a, a glorious time. Do you have any final words to say, Andrew, on the podcast? No, have a good have a good Easter and think about Christ's death and his resurrection. Amen. Well, until we meet again on the next podcast, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, and may you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.